Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Flamenco is one of the most iconic symbols of Spain. But how did that come to be, and how was flamenco perceived inside of Spain? Those are the questions I'll consider today with Sandy Olguin, a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma and the author of the recent book, Flamenco Nation, The Construction of Spanish National Identity from the University of Wisconsin Press. This episode is part of our Historias for BSPHS collaboration as a review of Flamenco Nation appears in the latest issue of Bulletin for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies. What I'd like to do is actually start by listening to a flamenco selection. So what are the elements that we should listen for to know that what we're about to listen to is flamenco? That's a, that's a good question because there are different kinds of flamenco palos or families, but um, there's some things that you find in common with a lot of them. You're gonna have a guitar, acoustic guitar generally. Um, often there's clapping or snapping. And the person who is singing tends to um, sing with a melismatic form. That is a group of notes sung over one syllable. So lots of I, I, I's or oh, oh, oh's and syllables drawn out in a kind of plaintive cry. That's the sort of more what are known as the deep song cantejondos are gonna do that kind of plaintive cry. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the basic elements, but it's, it's a lot more complex than that. And since I'm not a musicologist, I know it when I hear it, it's like I, I can, I know when something's jazz when I hear it, but I cannot explain every single element to you. So let's go ahead and listen to this sample from the famous flamenco singer Manolo Caracol singing Tientos. you probably know historians can never agree on anything and actually there aren't many people who've done a historical work in a formal sense on flamenco so you have different kinds of scholars that have different views about where flamenco began you have uh, one school of thought that some like to call the hermetically sealed school of thought where once the uh, Rom people, which they refer to themselves as gitanos or gypsies and um, I'll just call them gitanos when they came into Spain in the 15th century, they kept to themselves in their communities and had a particular kind of song and dance a genre that they kept to themselves and that it was only in the 19th century that they began to kind of publicize this artistic form through dance academies and these uh, kind of nightclubs called cafes cantantes. And uh, most scholars, however, think of flamenco as really originating in the 19th century, that it's a modern urban phenomenon, that it's a hybrid musical style of Andalusian folk song, um, music that Gitanos uh, came up with, and then also mixed with Afro-Caribbean and European um, influences. And you know, a lot of these people think that 
the musical influences still go way back to the um, medieval Spanish period of Al-Andalus where you had Muslim and Jewish music. And so that all of this is a kind of hybrid of music. And then there's some that think that it's both of these schools. That is that the music began in the Gitano communities but it was saved by the commercial culture of the cafes cantantes in the 19th century. Yeah, and I think sometimes you can actually hear the mixture of these different influences when you listen to the music. So you mentioned this cafe cantante culture in the 19th century. Could you tell us a bit more about that and what these neighborhoods were like where flamenco was popular in that period? Sure. Um, Cafés Cantantes uh, originally started off just as singing clubs with all kinds of music, piano playing, singing, um, much like you saw in, in the rest of industrializing Europe where you had reviews and, and various kinds of clubs. And so this was another form of entertainment club and then the Cafés Cantantes began to specialize a lot in flamenco music. So you would have people who would order drinks um, at a bar, sit in, in kind of a room where there was a stage and then you had the people performing, women and men playing guitars, snapping their hands, clapping, doing all of the things that we now think of as flamenco music and you would have dancers as well. So it was a giant performance in these small clubs and they tended to be located in the seedy sections of town. So this is part of the reason it got a reputation as being a, a seedy art form. It tended to be in working class neighborhoods and or theater districts and often linked to neighborhoods where there was prostitution. So a lot of these neighborhoods seemed scary for middle-class audiences. And even though a lot of middle-class people and aristocratic people came to these cafes cantantes and populated them, but uh, the neighborhoods themselves were seen as dangerous, dirty, et cetera, et cetera. Right, I see. And I imagine there might've been kind of a voyeuristic element even for those middle and upper-class people who went to these kind of venues. Oh, absolutely. There were, you know, especially when you get to the later parts of the 19th century and early 20th century, there's this idea that people are slumming it. They go to the local cafe cantante to see what, what the poor folks are doing. And so, yes, that was very much a part of it. And then <clears throat> there is this voyeuristic quality that comes, especially when foreign travelers come to Spain, they're told you need to go to these cafes cantantes and they go there and they they're mesmerized by the performances and by the people around them. And then they write about it and it brings more people to these places. Let's listen to an example of this style of singing. Here is La Niña de los Peines singing the Seguiria a Cabo y Canela.
travelers were also listening to this music. If they heard something like the selection we just played, what were some of their impressions? Well, it's it's funny because the foreigners spoke less about the flamenco music and the singing. When they did talk about it, it tended to be in a derogatory fashion because they heard it as moaning and groaning and wailing and I saw descriptions of that screaming banshees and all sorts of things like that. What foreigners really liked to see was the dance and the guitar playing. So the singing for them was secondary or and, and could have been eliminated, I think. Whereas for Spaniards that when they talk about flamenco, it's often the singing that's the most important element of it. So there really is a cultural difference there between how Spaniards and foreigners might perceive it. That music, some of them would maybe think of it as passionate music, but a lot of it um, rubbed them the wrong way because it was different from the kinds of music they were hearing in other parts, like Europe especially, and, and Americans as, as well. So for them, it was something that was a little discordant and, until their ear got used to it. And that's not what they were paying so much attention to. Right, so, so then how about the dancing? How did they feel about that? Now that they loved. And that's, I think, what gets the gets most foreigners into the art form is the dancing, because they view it, well, especially in the in the 19th century, a lot of, well, what am I saying? Even today, when you hear when you see people write about it, it's always about the passionate Kitana dancer and that it's 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 oozing with sexuality, and they're really, really taken by that. 
and especially the French writers, when they're comparing them to ballet dancers, just feel like the dance is so much more sensual than what you get in ballet. And uh, I think I've got a quote from Gautier who talks about ballet dancers, that their legs are like compasses or something is really crude, um, <laughs> but they, they're really taken with it. And what's funny is when you hear the lyrics to a lot of the flamenco tunes that people are dancing to, they're all about sorrow and pain and it's not necessarily about sexuality. Sometimes it is, but for people who are not Spanish, that is what they're taken with is the dance. For them, it represents some kind of passion that Spaniards have that nobody else has anymore. Yeah, I think you can really see how foreigners saw the other in, in Spain and these dancers and tried to kind of seek that out when they were traveling in the country. But how about the uh, Spanish themselves? How did they feel about this uh, music, especially the nationalist reformers that were so prominent, at least in intellectual circles in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? You can think of, if you think of flamenco as a form of mass culture and modern culture, you can begin to see where people fall on that spectrum because the form itself was very popular. Lots of people came in and, and saw these performances and loved these performances, but elites saw them as an image that was holding Spain back. That Spain was considered this backward pre-industrial nation and that anybody who wrote about flamenco kind of paired the two together, this, this uh, gitano other that Spain was this pre-industrial place full of passionate people who couldn't build anything and couldn't maintain empires and couldn't do anything like that. So it was an image that for elites seemed to be tied to a backward past and primitive past. And then you've got other elites who just see it as a pornographic spectacle. So they want to get they want to get rid of flamenco for that reason, and, and so these these elites join forces to try to cleanse Spain of that image, as this backward, uh, passionate nation who's really good at dancing and singing, but they can't do anything else, and also trying to purify the nation from this uh, sexual kind sexual seeming dance and performance. So you see many elites from the mid 19th century on trying to get rid of flamenco, trying to promote an image of Spain that is modern, even if it's based in certain kinds of Catholic traditions, but certainly modern, progressive, and um, not tied to this art form. One example that I can think of that's really good, there is this, this one anti-flamenco person named Eugenio Noel, who wrote consistently all these, uh, this anti-flamenco literature. And he kept talking about how you've got bull rings and cafes cantantes in every neighborhood, but very few schools. And the argument reminds me very much of the arguments that you see in American cities today where cities want to use tax money to build sports stadiums and not to like pay teachers more. And I think these arguments are very similar because it's sports and flamenco are similar in that they are mass cultural phenomenon that lots of people like to flock to. You mentioned um, at the beginning that we can really see flamenco as a modern phenomenon emerging in the 19th century 
And yet it seems like all these reformers are describing it as anti-modern. So where's the uh, disconnect there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, I think it's, a, it's that linkage of passion with pre-industrialization because industrialization is you know, seen as modern, clean lines, uh, rational, the legacy of the enlightenment, if you will. Whereas a performance, artistic performance like this, that is, seems highly improvised, even if it's not completely so, that is so different from other kinds of Western music, that I think that's one of the reasons why it's seen as anti-modern. Because, and then you've got, you know, the women in the flouncy skirts and these people playing guitars. So that's, I think, part of it. It's seen as holding Spain back from this rational, enlightened modernity. Yeah, it seems like it didn't really fit the picture of modernity that they wanted to have uh, for Spain. Now, you also have in this period nationalist reformers who are regional nationalists instead of for Spain as a whole, particularly in places like Catalonia and Andalusia. So how did they react to flamenco music? Yeah, we get into the complications of Spanish history, don't we? Right. So like much of Europe, there, you have a rise of, of nationalism and, and regional nationalisms. And part of that comes out of romanticism. And so in the 19, late 19th century and early 20th century, you see a resurgence or a rise of uh, Catalan nationalism in northeastern Spain. And so what the Catalans are trying to do is distance themselves from the centralizing tendencies of the state, the, of the modern state and the court that's in Madrid. And one of the ways they do that is to try to go back to their past, whether it's invented or not, depends on who you talk to. But one of the things is that Catalonia and Barcelona in particular is the most industrialized place in Spain. And yet it's got a lot of immigrants coming from Andalusia into the neighborhoods in Spain, into the overcrowded neighborhoods in Spain. So you see this conflict between the Catalans who want to assert a kind of Catalan identity against these Andalusians who have moved in and have brought with them their Andalusian traditions. So flamenco music is one of those traditions. So the Catalan nationalists are trying to create their own kind of identity and they're looking to what their forms are. And those are things like choirs, coros they're known as, and the dance, the sardana, which is a, a circle dance, which has become the kind of national dance of Catalonia. And so they are fighting against this Spanish slash Andalusian national identity by asserting their own kinds of identity. And again, the Spanish flamenco cafe cantantes are in the seediest parts of town of Barcelona. So they're tarred with that brush of seediness once again. And so for Catalans, they're trying very hard to assert their own identity against this one. But in Catalonia itself, flamenco is very popular. And one of the most famous flamenco dancers, Carmen Amaya, comes out of the slums of Barcelona and is you know, was world famous, I think, by the age of 13 or 14. And so there is this tradition still of flamenco within Catalonia, but it's one, especially in those early years of Catalan national resurgence that gets, is 
that they attempt to reject. Now in Andalusia or Andalusia, it's, it's a mixed bag because you have some Andalusian, Andalusian nationalists who also want to turn their uh, back to flamenco and just say that's, that's kitsch, that's that pornographic spectacle once again, and that's not what Andalusia is. But there is one person who really takes to flamenco and sees it as, as Andalusian, and he's considered the father of Andalusian nationalism, and that is Blas Infante. And he believes that, that flamenco music has the seeds of, of Andalusian national identity, that it is improvised. It is, well, that's, that's the big thing because Blas Infante is, is a kind of, he's a libertarian, I would say. And so he sees flamenco as a libertarian kind of music and that it is part of this tradition of oppression that Andalusians have faced um, since, the, since basically 1492 when Jews and later when Muslims were expelled from, from Andalusia and that in fact, those people helped to make Andalusia what it was and flamenco music is a part of that history. And we've actually talked about Blas Infante on this podcast before in terms of oh, yes, I heard that. yes, the representations of this idea of Al-Andalus. And you can see right. kind of a similar sentiment in, in how he treats that as well, actually embracing these mixed origins of kind of a Spanish nationalism, whereas others are, are trying to hide those at the same time. Yeah, I, and I think that was Eric Calderwood's talk, right? right exactly. His yeah, and I was when I listened to it, I was really taken with the the links between the two, and and I do remember reading the Blas Infante's discussions of Morocco, and places like that. So yes, he's very much a person who believes that this hybrid nature of Andalusia is is really what makes Spain Spain. And so even though he's a regional nationalist for Andalusia, he also believes that it is essential for the national identity of Spain for Andalusia to, to exist. And it's a, it's a really interesting look at Spanish national identity and Andalusian national identity. And I find his work incredibly fascinating for that period. Now, after this kind of flourishing of flamenco in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you explain in your book that this cafe cantante culture pretty much disappeared during the Civil War. But what positions did the institutions of the subsequent Franco regime take on flamenco? Well, at first they were very anti-flamenco because for all the reasons that I've said, this is, and what Spaniards wanted to do is to talk about the regional diversity of music and song within Spain. And that's, that's a current that, that lots of intellectuals also took with respect to Spain is that it, it's got lots of diverse cultures, diverse music, but it really gets institutionalized in the, during the Franco regime. <clears throat> and it's done through the Seccion Femenina, the women's section of the Falange party in, in Spain under the leadership of Pilar Rivera. And what they try to do is they form these groups known as the Coros y Danzas de España, the Songs and Dances of Spain. And they begin to train these regional groups in regional dances and songs. And so within that, pre with using that premise, they're really trying to make 
Andalusian music and dance to be at the same level as all the other ones. And they see flamenco music as not being Andalusian they, music and dance. They see it as a perversion of Andalusian folk songs. So they really try to negate the idea that flamenco is part of Spanish identity. Again, the people who are running this see flamenco as seedy and lascivious and all sorts of things like that. So they don't want that as part of the image of Spain. But I understand that that um, approach to flamenco started to change as the Franco regime progressed. Yes, so that's in the early years in the 40s and early 50s. But eventually when the, the Franco regime tries to open itself up to other countries in the world or other countries of the world, let the Franco regime open up depending on your point of view, then they begin to market flamenco because they realize that this is the thing that will bring in tourist dollars. You know, they, they know from having read things, from having seen people's reactions to flamenco music, that flamenco is going to be one of the ways to get tourist money into Spain. And so when the tourist boom begins in the late 50s and in the 60s, flamenco performances along with bullfighting and other things that are seen as Spanish begin to be promoted very heavily abroad, less so in Spain, but abroad. And you have a lot of tourist companies that have flamenco tours as part of their packages. So this becomes very important because they know that it's going to bring in money and everything that they do, whether if they're going to bring uh, tourist groups to other countries and tourist industries to other countries, they will have flamenco performances as part of their uh, ways of getting more tourists to come to Spain. And they do this through world's fairs. They do it through something called Expo Tour. So they really promote this as something Spanish. And, and obviously now, well, not COVID year, but before COVID, and we hope after COVID, flamenco is something that is really considered part of the national tourist industry. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you look at any guidebook of Spain today, you, you often see someone in a flamenco dress on the cover or, or that sort of thing. So I think it's still definitely part of the imagery. Yeah, and if you go to the cities like Madrid and the tourist areas, you're always people are always hustling for, to get you into a flamenco show, or you have people dressed up in flamenco costumes, even though you know people do not like walk around like that every day of their lives. But you you also write in your book how flamencoologists, I guess there's a term like that, they consider the Franco regime to be kind of a low point uh, when it comes to flamenco music but then it's thought to have had a resurgence in the late and post-Franco period. So what brought about that resurgence? You, you know, you had performers who were amazing even in that period, and then shortly after the death of Franco. But I think one of the things that kept the art form going is what began it in the first place, is a kind of hybridity of music. So. Who's the who's one of the most uh, famous flamenco guitarist in the modern era? Is probably Paco de Lucia, and he, I think, ended up promoting flamenco and changing it a bit with a kind of jazz fusion of flamenco, and that opened this thing up to more audiences. 
and you had people who did uh, great movies and dance productions like Carlos Saura and his films. He would um, show people like the, the dancer Antonio Gades, who's is, he's amazing. And he also performed at the New York World's Fair. So you always had these talents that were going on the international circuit, bringing and publicizing this flamenco music and performance to other audiences. It's just that there's a difference between the professional performers who go out on the professional circuit and those who are in, let's say, a, a hotel in Benidorm performing for the hotel goers outside in a fountain of water or something like that. I've seen promotional videos where people are just performing flamenco in broad daylight with, you know, right by the poolside and it just, is very strange and kitschy looking. So I think that's the difference is once you, you have people on the professional circuit and then it's taken seriously by intellectuals and uh, critics, then you start seeing this resurgence. But I also think it has to do with this fusion element that comes in and you get the kinds of changes that you have um, in the 60s and 70s. Let's listen to a selection from one of the famous professional singers of this period, Enrique Morente. Here he is singing the Himno de Andalusia. La bandera Blanca y verde Vuelve tras siglo de guerra A decir país y esperanza Bajo el sol de tierra andaluza levantado pedir tierra y libertad pedir tierra y libertad pedir tierra y libertad sea por Andalucía libre patoita la España Patoita la España y la humanidad. How can we observe the changes that flamenco underwent after the Franco period in this selection that we just played? Well, the fact that you're playing a, a regional national anthem is tells you one big change, right? This is a, the Himno de Andalucía, which was written by Blas Infante. And, and it was approved of as this national anthem in the 1930s, but it didn't become official until the 1980s, if I'm not mistaken. So 
this assertion of regional identity is, is, so, is so very different. So we thank the Flamenco Archive that the regional government of Andalusia has set up, provided the recordings. So I think to even have an institution like that is, is quite a change. Oh, absolutely. And they are, they're an amazing place. I did a lot of research there for a couple of weeks and they just gave me everything for free as they really want to promote flamenco, well, Andalusian culture and then flamenco culture as well. So they're a fabulous place. I recommend them wholeheartedly to anybody who's doing research. Yeah, and so that's actually the point that I wanted to conclude with because, of course, as we've discussed, flamenco is still definitely a part of the image of Spain that many foreigners have today. But do you think that it's become part of Spaniards' national identity as well? Ah, complicated question. Uh, One of the things that I believe is that national identity is very contextual. So that if you're talking to people in Spain, they would never, unless they're from Andalusia, they would never admit to flamenco being a part of Spanish national identity. But take that person and move them outside of Spain and they might say that it is. But I also know some people who are, you know, pretty staunch, if not, you know, regional nationalists, at least cultural regional nationalists who say, I'm, I'm from Galicia. I never think of flamenco as, as part of my upbringing. It's, it's bagpipes that's really important to me. So no, I don't think the average Spaniard thinks of flamenco as being part of their national identity unless they work for the tourist industry. But I do think that in Andalusia, they certainly believe that. But obviously outside of Spain, that is one of the thing, you know, it's bullfights, flamenco, tapas, and sometimes the tomato throwing. But that's a more recent phenomenon on the tourist circuit. But no, I don't think Spaniards necessarily see themselves as a flamenco nation. So this is really a a perception that remains um, from from the outside looking in more than in Spain itself. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a dynamic process. And this is one of the things I argue in my book is that national identity is never quite stable. And there are lots of different people trying different sorts of national identities. And when it has become necessary, especially for economic reasons to promote flamenco as part of the identity, they, they will do that. Even though lots of people don't think that it is part of the identity because you basically have foreigners telling Spaniards what their identity is and then Spaniards reflecting some of what those foreigners want. And as I think I said in my book, it's, it's very much like what uh, the Rolling Stones and, and Eric Clapton did for the blues in the United States is that they, they elevate it to a higher level. It's, it's the Brits coming in, they hear, they hear um, the blues and they say, this is part of the American tradition. And then they, they use it in their own music. And then it's Americans say, oh yes, this is part of our tradition. So I see it as a much more dynamic process. Yeah, and I just have to add that when I lived in Spain and I told people I was going to see a flamenco show, they usually reacted with sort of shock and surprise that just saying that it was never something that would occur to them to do, which I always (laughs) thought was funny because, you know, they must know that, that this is something that foreigners do. But then I had some Spanish friends who were living in the U.S., 
and they told me that they were going to see a rodeo. And <laughs> I, I was shocked because it has never occurred to me to go see a rodeo. But exactly. for them, you know, that was part of their perception of, of this is American culture. This is what you do. Right. Yeah. Right. You got it. That, and that's, <laughs> that's one of the big arguments of the book. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy, for coming on the program. This has been a fascinating contextualization of this flamenco phenomenon that I think so many of us, especially if we are from other countries, have a vague familiarity with. But what is its history? Um, what are the perceptions of it inside Spain? I think that's something a lot of people don't know about it. So appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I had fun with this interview and um, hope people read up more on what flamenco is all about because as much as I take some of the mystique off it, I still really love it. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that either. So we'll actually leave you with one final selection, and that is Enrique Morente's daughter, Estrella, her rendition of the Imdo de Andalusia. Alma de hombre 